All right, uh, as you know, we're in the study of Joshua, and today's lesson is in Joshua 8 and 9, chapter 8 and 9, and we'll see, last week we saw the story of uh, the mistake that Israel made at Ai. They had, had a ban on looting, and one of their people had looted, and so there were severe consequences. And so Israel learned from the mistake at Ai, just like Ralph Cramden learned from his mistakes in today's movie. Ralph gets himself in some, some messes, doesn't he? All right, Joshua. As we said uh, last week, AI made a mistake, and if we're very wise and fortunate, we learn from our mistakes. I saw in advertising, the advertising business, they actually give awards for the biggest snafu, the biggest mistake of the year in advertising. They call it the Chevy Nova Award. And because, this is because years ago when they came out with the Chevy Nova, they tried to market it in South America. And it turns out they went down there, open dealerships, advertised and everything, not realizing that Nova in Spanish means no go. <laughs> they managed to sell zero no goes. And so ever since then, they've had the Chevy Nova Award. And uh, the next year, a Scandinavian vacuum cleaner company uh, won it because they launched a an American campaign for their vacuum cleaner, but they had an error in translation also. Their slogan was, when they, when they uh, translated it into English, their slogan was, nothing sucks like an electro-lux. <laughs> the next year, American Airlines won it, trying to promote their new leather seats in Mexico. And they meant to say, fly in leather, but translated, literally, it said, fly naked. <laughs> and then the all-time winner was Coors Beer. Coors Beer's slogan, they went down there, and here that year their slogan was, let loose, enjoy yourself. But when they translated it into Spanish, the let loose came out, break wind. <laughs> break wind, enjoy yourself. <laughs> So historically, if you're a student of the Old Testament, especially, you know, Israel made a lot of mistakes throughout the whole Old Testament. It's just about their disobedience and all their mistakes they made and God's treatment, constantly giving them another chance, and they constantly disobeyed. And uh, somebody asked me, when we were talking about the spiritual life or being obedient to the Word of God, they said, it's so difficult, it's so hard. Why is it so hard? Why could they not do it? And it really comes down to the New Testament speaks to this real well. Uh, three things. There's three forces at work against the believer. Whoever you are, these three forces are always at work, and they are powerful. And it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what we're up against. The world, because the world is just full of lies and, and, and turns the truth upside down. And you have all this invalid input that you get on a constant basis. You know, computer engineers call it garbage in, garbage out. And so that's what we're just bombarded with constantly. Stuff like, if it feels good, do it. And stuff like, the ends justify the means. And basically, you know, everybody lives by that stuff, you know. How can, 
It'd be wrong if it feels so right, you know, the Coinus song. And uh, also, everybody's just always saying, just get it done. How am I going to, how are we going to get, just get it done? And, you know, when you hear that, especially when you're young, you know what that means. Whatever you have to do, just get it done. Don't tell me how you did it, you know, like that. And so everybody goes around and, and does it, whatever it is, deceptively or any old way. And these are the lies of the world, and the peer pressure that's on you all the time is overwhelming. And then the flesh, uh, these bodies that we are made up of have passionate desires. I mean, we're hungry, we're thirsty, uh, we uh, have a passion in the sexual mode. I don't know how to put that nicely. But these passions kind of just control us, these desires, these lusts for all the pleasures of the world that we think we got to have. And also, all the things we think will fulfill us, like money and power, prestige, etc. Our desire for all that is so powerful that it causes us to make wrong decisions. And of course, thirdly, there is a spiritual warfare going on. So the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the devil very wisely disguises himself as an angel of light, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11. So all these things that are dressed up real pretty, really behind them, these temptations that we all have to resist on a constant basis, are very wisely uh, concocted to look like something that's good, you know, something that's pleasant. And behind it all, of course, spiritual warfare, Paul says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is against the spiritual forces of darkness. And so it's tough. It's difficult. And to keep the law perfectly, you know, the Ten Commandments, the clearest examples, God's moral standard, is just becomes impossible. And, of course, that's why God, out of his love for us, took on the flesh and came into the world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that's why we believe in Jesus Christ, and only through Christ can we be reunited with God the Father. So it is difficult, but God has provided. God has provided. And if you're wise and fortunate enough, like Israel, you learn from your mistakes. And we're going to see here in chapter 8, as we get into it, that Israel, after they made the tremendous mistake at Ai, and they thought that they could just send a small contingent up there and, and they would win, and they weren't going to keep each other accountable and the looting ban. And so God said, I'm going to stop you right there. And we're going to, I'm going to get your attention. And so uh, you have this um, lesson where Achan, the guy who, who looted, is apt absolutely executed you know stoned to death and so boy that got their attention and it seems severe to us but when you're talking about you know trying to save three million people and this one guy's actions have jeopardized that and 36 people died when they first attacked AI because of what this guy did so he had it coming he definitely had it coming and so after the, the victory at Jericho, Israel had uh, great momentum, and then 
They have this train wreck at AI, and Achim's crime was judged, restitution was made, and Israel's favor with God was restored. And of course, if he had just, the, you're going to see it in today's lesson in chapter 8 and 9, if he had just suppressed his greedy desires and obeyed God's command, he thought he had to have that gold. And what you'll see it in today's, God is going to lift the band once the treasury in the priesthood, the treasury of the Lord is full, then he's going to let them have the stuff that they find uh, in their enemies. So if he had just suppressed his greedy desires and waited on the Lord, all of his dreams of wealth would have come true anyway. Like the theologian said, if you aim for the things of the world, you'll miss heaven. And that's what he did. But you aim for heaven... And God will throw in the world also. And that's exactly what's going to happen. The people that are obedient now are going to end up getting the gold and silver because they were obedient. And so um, now you look at the strategy of taking AI in chapter 8. And we read, the Lord said to Joshua, okay, now, you don't need to fear anymore or be dismayed. This is what you do. Take all the people. Before you just took a small contingent, you were overconfident. This time take everybody and just overwhelm them with your power. Take all the people of war with you and rise up and go to Ai, for I have given into your hand the king of Ai. I'm back with you, boys. So this is going to work. And here's, here's your strategy. And he's going to lay out their strategy. He says, Take a small contingent like you did before and go to, in front of the city. And they're going to be overconfident when they see you. We'll just go out and whip them like we did before. And so the army of Ai will come out to fight you, but we're going to have the bulk of the army behind the hill behind the city, on the west side of the city. And you can see on the map here, uh, it's, it's a mountainous area that goes up higher in the west and you've got Ai there and so uh, they're going to put the bulk of the army of 30,000 on the west side of the city. You can see they're going to basically surround it and one part of the army is going to be behind on the west side over there and uh, the small part's going to be right in front of it on the, on the east and then they're going to have another guard up on the north so there's going to be nowhere for these guys to retreat and wherever they go they're going to be cut off. Uh, and so you can see the main Israelite force pitches battle. And while they come out to fight the small force, the guys uh, that are behind them are going to come in, and the gates will be open, and they'll burn the city and wipe out the city. And then when that happens, the AI army will turn around, but they'll be surrounded by that time. Uh, and so great strategy. The city of Ai will be wiped out, every single person. Now that God is back with them, everything's going to work. That's kind of the, the lesson to this, right? If God's with you, who can be against you? If God's with you, it's going to work out. It may look bad in the short run, but in the long run, God's going to take care of you. God is with you. And so the strategy's laid out here in chapter 8. Uh, and we're seeing, we see in verse 15, Joshua and Israel pretended to be beaten. So the smaller army in front withdrew. Joshua withdrew that group to bring out the AI army, you know. 
And once they come out too far, then the rear guard attacks and comes in behind them. They were drawn away from the city. And so verse 17, not a man was left in Ai or Bethel. There was a small group in Bethel that uh, supported Ai. And so they wiped out both of the populations of those towns. And the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I'll give it into your hand. So it was Joshua's signal that caused the rear guard to come in and take the city. And so uh, had it all worked out like clockwork and, and just exactly what they planned they were able to do. The men in ambush rose quickly from their place. When he stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And then they set the city on fire. When the men of Ai turned back and looked, behold, the city was on fire. And they were surrounded. And Joshua and Israel saw that the men in ambush had captured the city. Uh, so verse 22, Ai was, the men of the army of Ai was trapped. They had them from every side. And they cleaned them out just as they were commanded to do. And so verse 28, Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever. It was never rebuilt, a desolation until this day. And then he hanged the king of Ai on a tree. That's the actual artist rendering. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> uh, and so... AI's wiped out, the leadership's wiped out, and that's it for them. Now you'd expect, man, we get, we're on a roll now. Let's go get the next city. Not so fast. They remembered that Moses had commanded them back in Deuteronomy. Once you get into the interior there in the central highlands, I want you to go up to Mount Ebal. And I want you to reaffirm the covenant with me. And so they go up to Ebal, and you can see it in uh, verse 30 through 35. That's what 30 through 35 is about. All of Israel goes up, and on the little insert over here on the right, I think you can see the, the mountains there. And there's two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and then there's a valley right between them, and they're pretty close together. So Joshua and the priests are going to set up in the valley, and he's going to have uh, half the people of Israel on the slope of one mountain and half on the other. And Joshua is going to read the law of Moses from the book of Deuteronomy all the way through to the blessings and the curses. And as he does that, and periodically stops, there will be a reaction from the people. In agreement with them, they will say, Amen. Amen. And of course, the, the Hebrew word that, that we use the Greek word for amen, but also the Hebrew equivalent is basically you say it's the truth. Did you ever wonder about what you were saying when you close a prayer with amen? Now you know. See, you don't see, you don't learn this stuff anywhere else. <laughs> You have to come here. <laughs> You're basically saying you close the prayer and all this praise to God and everything, and you finish it. Ain't it the truth? It's the truth. And 
so the people would uh, agree with him and you could see the two mountains in, in, uh, in between where the people, I mean, was uh, Joshua, the people were up on the mountains of Gerizim and Ebal. And they reaffirmed the covenant that God had made with them on the east side of the Jordan River before they went any further. It's a good idea to stop every now and then and do that, you know, no matter what day and age you're in or what your circumstances are. You want to always make sure and stop and thank the Lord and recommit yourself to living according to his word. So uh, in verse 30 through 35, Joshua built an altar to the Lord. What, what do you do with an altar? You make sacrifices. What are the sacrifices? Well, for sin. So you stop and you make sacrifices to the Lord so that uh, blood of the innocent animal or your guilt. So God covers it up. The word for atonement in the Old Testament literally means to cover it up. So they, made, they built these altars, made the sacrifice that covered up the sin, and God forgave them and they could continue uh, doing what they were supposed to be doing. All right? So they take the law, and uh, in verse 32, he's to write it down and leave it there as a memorial. He wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. Now, if you go to uh, a church with a liberal theologian as your minister, he will tell you Moses didn't write any of his books, and Joshua didn't write this. So I guess they had a pretty hard time, since neither one of them could write, writing this down, as it says right here. But I know that you have eyes, and you can read. So I trust your judgment more than those liberal theologians. Why? Just because you can read. And God has blessed you with his revelation of the truth. So are you going to believe the truth from God that you can read yourself, or are you going to go believe some dumbbell who's going to try to wow you with all his degrees? You're supposed to say, oh, I'm going to believe the word. You're supposed to. <laughs> exactly. You can tell I'm a little bit passionate about this. All right. So now in chapter 9, we have a pivot in the action now that they reaffirm the covenant. Now they begin uh, their strategy to conquer the southern part. And so uh, in Joshua chapter 9, we see the reaction of all the tribes of the Canaanites. When they saw that they took Jericho and that they took Ai, the Canaanites uh, said, we got to get together. Previously, all these little city-states that were walled cities, they pretty much kept to themselves, and they were rivals, both economically and militarily. And they had built walls to protect themselves from each other, really. But now that they all have a common enemy of Israel, they come together in a kind of confederacy. So we see uh, in the beginning, first two verses of chapter 9, it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in other words, west of the Jordan, in the hill country and in the lowland and on the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite, 
all these parasites <laughs> gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. I couldn't help but think of uh, Psalm chapter 2. David, in writing the Psalm, Psalm uh, chapter 2, or Psalm 2, he said, what would cause all the kings and leaders of the world to come together against a common enemy? The Lord. In their common struggle, in rebellion against God, they can all come together and fight against the Lord taking over. And so from a spiritual perspective, from God's perspective, that's actually what's happening. All these people are coming together to try to thwart God's plan. God has made the plan to dispossess the Canaanites as a judgment against them and at the same time fulfill his promises to Abraham by giving them the land. And all these people, all these cities are coming together to thwart, to prevent God's plan. That's what's going on here from God's perspective. So when the inhabitants of Gibeon, so there's uh, four cities around Gibeon. They're not on, all on there. They're to the, I think, um, in the area, but they're not on this map. But there's four cities, Gibeon being the main city, are going to come together in a deceptive plan. They get together and they said, okay, we've heard about all the miracles God did, you know, at the Red Sea and then out in the wilderness for 40 years. We've heard how they crossed the Jordan River. We've heard how they took Jericho. Now we've seen them take Ai and they're heading our way. What do you say we use some good common sense and realize that this God of Israel is the real deal? And we go to submit to him in all humility and offer to serve him. And in their wisdom, that's exactly what they decide to do. And in their humility, that's exactly. They're willing to humble themselves and become servants in order to be spared and to join Israel in their struggle and in their observance of the one true God. And in their brilliance, they realize the leaders of Israel might not go along with it, so they're going to very sneakily, deceptively, shrewdly come up with a plan to trick the leaders of Israel, the people of Israel. And that's what chapter 9 is about. So when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard about all this, they acted craftily, and they said it. They set out as if they were envoys, ambassadors on a, from a long distance place away. Because they knew that Israel was only going to wipe out the Canaanites because they were the ones that are in the land. So they were going to pass themselves off as res residents of a land far away to the east of the Jordan River. And they said, because we've seen how awesome you are and we believe in your God, we'd like to make a treaty with you. And so Israel gets together and they're thinking about it. And then the Gibeonites say, and also, we'll come and serve you. We'll do all the heavy lifting. We'll be your servants forever. That made their minds up real quick. 
Oh, yeah, then we'll do it. And the text is even going to say, and Israel didn't even bother to consult the Lord, <laughs> which is very telling. Okay, so here's, they acted craftily, and they took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins. They took old, beat-up wineskins, worn-out, torn, and mended, worn-out and patched sandals on their feet. They went to great lengths to disguise themselves as if they'd made a long journey to coming there. Everything was worn out. Even the bread was molded. Look. See? That's mold. All right. And so verse 6, they say, we've come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us, a treaty, a deal. And Moses had told them they could make, in, in Deuteronomy 20, he said, you can make treaties with nations outside of Israel, but not the Canaanites. And so the men of Israel said to the Hivites, which is the kind of Canaanite the people of Gibeon were, perhaps you're living within our land. How do we know? that you don't live here. How then shall we make a covenant with you since we don't know? And here's, here's the hook. Verse 8. We're your servants. <laughs> we'll serve you. And so Joshua said to them, well, who are you and where do you come from? And they said, we are your servants. Notice the repetition there. Your servants, having come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God, and we believe in him, we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, king of Heshbon, Og, king of Bashan, and, and Ashtaroth. So our elders, our leaders, all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, let's take provisions and go on a long journey. And go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. We will serve you. Now then, make a covenant with us. This our bread, so they hold out the bread like the pitcher. We took it for our provisions on the day that we left. And look, now it's moldy and crumbled. Uh, and these wineskins, as they brought all this stuff up, paraded it to try to prove that they'd made a long journey, you know. And look at our sandals. They've got holes. They're all worn out. Very long journey. So look at verse 14. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions. They took the stuff they offered them and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them. So they make the covenant. They make the treaty. and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. So legally and I think spiritually, because they did the oath by the Lord their God, they would have peace with the Gibeonites. But you're not going to fool them forever. Verse 16, it came about at the end of three days after they'd made a covenant with them that they heard that they were neighbors. And they actually lived within the land. Then the sons of Israel set out and came to their cities on the third day and found them, and they said, wait a minute. Did you have the cities listed there? 
And the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. They took an oath. And the whole congregation grumbled. Can you believe we got tricked? Those dummies that are leading us, it's their fault. See, they didn't like politicians in those days either. <laughs> so now we can't touch them. We can't do anything to the Gibeonites because our leaders made such a blunder. So the leader said to them, let them live. So they became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation just as the leaders had spoken to them. So I... Um, you can see that they're doing the heavy lifting. Somebody, think of all the stuff, you know, that they were going to have to build and, and all. But living up there in kind of in a mountainous area, they had to bring, they had to carry a lot of water. They had to make wells in lower places and carry it up. So there's a lot of work left to be done. And when you pitch the tent of the tabernacle, the priesthood has a tremendous amount of work in making all those animal sacrifices every day. And on the special days, they have to literally do thousands of animal sacrifice, a tremendous amount of work that fell upon the Gibeonites because they had to bring water up to clean up this huge mess that would be at the tabernacle and later at the temple after Solomon built the temple. Imagine, like on Passover, they would sacrifice anywhere from, according to the the historian Josephus, anywhere from 250,000 to 400,000 lamps at the tabernacle, at the temple. Who's going to clean all those carcasses up? Who's going to bring the water up to wash all that away and to clean everything, all the blood that was shed up there? The Gibeonites. And we find them in the history of Israel from that from that time on. In the history books of Kings and Chronicles, they're there at the tabernacle. Uh, when uh, Solomon opens the, the temple, they're there working. Later on, when they return from, when they're in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, when they come back, we find them in the book of Ezra as some of the people, the Gibeonites, came back. And then when the temple was open, in, in five, that was in 536, and the temple was open again, rebuilt and open in 515, there's the Gibeonites. And then when the city's rebuilt in the book of Nehemiah, about 450 B.C., the city is completely rebuilt with walls and everything around the temple, guess who's there working every day? The Gibeonites. So we know as a fact that they joined Israel, they became a part of Israel, and believed in the God of Israel. See? So God forgave them, they were saved, and everything went well for them and Israel because they benefited greatly from this. Let's read on. Verse 22, Joshua called for them and spoke to them. All right, you need to know something. You deceived us, saying you're very far. So 
Therefore, verse 23, there's going to be consequences. We're going to let you live. We're going to keep our deal. But there's going to be consequences. You are to be cursed. And you shall never cease being slaves, being hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of God, the tabernacle and the temple, which is exactly what happened. But I think if you're a Gibeonite, you think, that curse, that's a blessing. That's a blessing. Let me see if I can recap this. Not only am I spared my mortal life, but now I have become united to the one true God. I'm saved eternally. And I get to serve in the house of the Lord. Later on, Jesus would say, you want to be great? Be a servant. So what kind of curse is this? Not a curse at all for the Gibeonites. So they answered Joshua and said, Because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God had commanded the servants of Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants. See, they believed all that. None of the other Canaanites did. Rahab believed it. She spared. The Gibeonites believed it. They're spared. And so they say, we believed all this, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you, and that's why we have done this thing. So they came to God humbly, and they came to the leaders of Israel deceptively. And so you might ask the question, well, why would God forgive them why would God let them get away with this and I thought God had said wipe all Canaanites out well let's go through that real quick first of all what is the nature of God God is gracious and merciful he's always going to act graciously and mercifully now he's also just and holy so he's also always going to act gracious He's always going to act just according to his justice and his holiness. So originally they were going to be wiped out because of their evil, but since they have humbled themselves and come to the Lord, confessed their sin, and joined them and believe in God, he is generous, graciously forgiving them. So God is gracious and merciful. We know that 2 Peter 3.9 in the New Testament says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as he counts slowness, but he is patient. Why hasn't God come back? Why hasn't Jesus come back and ended this messy world that we live in? Because he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repent. So God's waiting for everybody who will repent and come to come. So God doesn't wish for any of the Canaanites to be destroyed. But justice is coming, and if they won't repent, like the Gibeonites did, they will be destroyed. But the Gibeonites did, see? And so the Gibeonites were humble, and they believed. James 4, 6 says, uh, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So when you come to the Lord in humility... He will respond. You come to him with pride, like the other Canaanites did, and said, you come in here, we're going to wipe you out. 
then you get wiped out. But if you come to the Lord like the Gibeonites did in all humility and said, we'll serve, we'll be your servants. We believe in your God. And so God spared them and they became a part of Israel. Also, we know from Scripture, Scripture says clearly that anyone seeks the Lord as the Gibeonites did, as Rahab did, will find him. God knows hearts. God says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. First Chronicles, that's for you, my son Solomon. Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For The Lord searches all hearts, understands every intent of the thoughts of all hearts. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. The psalmist, Psalm 9, those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So that's why God forgave them. And you say, well, yeah, but wait a minute, they were liars and they were deceptive. Yes. <laughs> but the Gibeonites lied and deceived us, did Rahab. But here's the deal. God is a forgiving God who knows what's in their heart. He knew what was in the Gibeonites' heart. He knew what was in Rahab's heart. And if they were humble, which they clearly are, believe in God and are willing to serve God as patience with them and still forgives. And all this is still true today. Everyone's going to be judged eventually as the Canaanites were. But everyone who comes in humility before the Lord, seeking him sincerely, will be saved. And these guys are perfect examples of that. We would never expect it. But God knows. And God, by God's providence, all this occurs. And so the curse that uh, they thought they were making on the Gibeonites became a, in fact, a blessing. Gibeon was converted and they were believers in the God of Israel. And so uh, in verse 25, more humility, the Gibeonites say to Joshua, now behold, we are in your hands. You tell us what to do and we'll do it. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to do to us. And thus he did to them and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel. And they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord. And to this day, in the place which he would choose, they're still doing that. The Gibeonites are a great lesson in who people are and what they need to do as well as in who God is. Uh, so in conclusion, you know, where people seek God, where people humble themselves and believe, our merciful God will spare them. And in the same way, we must admit that, of course, that there's parallels with our experience. How did we come to God? We're Gentiles. We're not Jews. We're not God's people. We were an exception as well. How did that happen? We were lost and dead in our sins, 
yet we have also humbled ourselves. We've also sought out the Lord, and God revealed himself to us. We found him in that sense, and therefore God has made provision for our sin through the blood of Christ. We're every bit as much a marvel of the wonderful grace of God as the Gibeonites and Rahab. We've all come to him, we've all been forgiven, we've all been restored the same way. Like God's provision and God's grace and God's mercy. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these wonderful stories in Joshua. And I pray, Lord, that you would always convict us that it's all about you. It's all about your grace and your mercy. It's never about us. We see all the mistakes that Israel's made. We see the mistakes that the Gibeonites made. And yet, Lord, you still patiently forgave them and restored them. They were alienated and you restored them just as you did us. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.